Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 31 of the Cast of Call, where we talk all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your host, Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my quartet, the one, the only, the DJ. Hi, hi, hi. Is that appropriate? I don't know if that's appropriate, right? Uh... Is that cultural uh, <laughs> cultural um, assimilation? Unclear. <laughs> okay, so our plan for this weekend, we are going to continue our journey through the Wastelands with an in-depth conversation about the Wastelands Book 2, Lud, A Heap of Broken Images, Chapter 5, Bridge and City, Sections 1 through 10. Woo! <laughs> I can't wait till we get to the next book. I hope the chapters are slightly less intense. I can't promise anything. <laughs> all right. Well, before we dig into all that goodness, DJ, can you please do me a solid and remind our listener of our spoiler policy? As usual, guys, we will not cross over into the dark side of the past, future, or more importantly, uh, time invariant sections that are not covered in this chapter because <laughs> I, I was going to say future, but then that's not always the case. Um, uh, anyway, we will not escape the realm of chapter five sections one through 10. So we promise you, we will draw a line in the sand and we'll notify you, uh, that a chip, a and cut your fingers off before you touch that dirty page. <laughs> I don't know where I was going I with actually that. have a little, I, yeah, I, I liked it. it. It felt like, um, it was like a little bit of like a, you, you up close, you don't understand it, but you step back and the picture comes together. <laughs> kind of description. <laughs> I do have one little spoiler, um, and I will definitely give a warning. It's like a little 30-second spoiler just where I was just like, hmm, conspiracy theories. But we'll, we will definitely give you a heads up when we get to that. It's not going to be anything super in-depth. Um, so it doesn't need its own spoiler section. Uh, okay, so iTunes reviews. We don't actually have any this time, um, so we can skip right past wah, that. Wah, and, and I know, but for those of you out there who are enjoying the show, we would love a review on iTunes if you if you feel inspired. And if you do, we'll read it on the show. And if you All guys right. are wondering why we sound a little different today, um, I am sitting on the floor <laughs> of my uh, family room with a mic attached to me. So there you go, guys. Because DJ has moved for like at least the third time since we started this podcast. <laughs> And your furniture's not there yet, but your dedication is, and that's what matters. Who needs furniture when you have dedication? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, all of my soon-to-be middle-aged bones would like furniture. (laughs) Oh, yes. All right. Anyway, so continue on. All right. Where where do we leave off, DJ? Um, So these guys had just been hanging out with the elderly folks of a small town who explained to them with their super hearing and lack of sight that trains – Definitely leave the town ahead, and this town may be the secret to crossing the wasteland. Dun dun dun. He said the title of the books, you guys. Yeah, I mean, that's like, uh, you know, they had to get there eventually, right? Hopefully. Right. I mean, I don't know. I'm, like I said, I'm reading the Expanse books, and like the titles of the books make absolutely no sense, and they never come up in the book. Really? So I appreciate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get back on track. All right, what so we got an actual like, uh, chapters to cover here. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Okay, so all right, we we got to where we left off. So now we're picking up in section one. Okay, so the team, the ragtag team with Oi in tow, is now wandering down the road out of the elderly community that they were previously hanging out in. And uh, this group suddenly discovers, off in the distance, a crashed plane. And if you remember earlier, uh, one of the characters, uh, I believe it was one of the twins, uh, Mm -hmm. mentioned that there was a great king who flew in the air. And then there was some arguing about whether that was true or not and whether that was a legit thing. Well, it turns out there was. And so they wander up to this plane and they find a rather obese man in the cockpit, which – um, I think he was just like really like he was like a giant. So, he so was like a really is that what's OK? So here's my question. So yeah. if the guy is dead and he's been there for so long that he's a skeleton and like has congealed green flakes of what may have been brain matter on the side of his skull, how do they know how massive he is? I think he's the the, the skeleton itself is huge. I think it's oh. sort of like one of the. 
Yeah, like they talk about its broad shoulders and its giant head. And so like it made me think of like space jockey a little bit. Oh, when they- he was like a giant. Like he's probably like seven feet tall and like bit like Which bit. explains the David and Goliath reference. Okay. Yes. Yep. It's all coming together. <laughs> okay. So uh they kind of chat about how big he is. Uh um Roland kind of tells this story about a giant who is kicked by a smaller person and the weight of his armor ends up pulling him down and killing him. And then they kind Lord of, co- Perth. yeah, they Lord Perth. Thank you. And then they sort of collate that to uh, David and Goliath and they're like, Oh yeah, well there's, you know, a- another basically twinner explanation between worlds of like similar things being on both sides. Mm-hmm. And then Jake's looking at the plane. He's like, well, wait a minute. Hold on a second. I think I did some sort of, uh, uh, report on this plane at one point in my life. He's like, look at that gun. That's a air-cooled such-and-such German blah-blah-blah. And, like, I don't know anything about planes, guys, so I'm uh, <laughs> immediately <laughs> paraphrasing into blah-blah-blahs. Uh, uh, but... Uh, and then Jake's like, well, uh, I want to climb up on the wing and look. And Roland's like, oh, no, 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 no. That that, that wing is – it may look structurally sound, but it's been here a long time. It's not safe to climb on. Okay, well, lift me up. So they lift him up, and sure enough, uh, Jake finds that there's a swastika on the yeah. uh, uh, side of the plane. And so even though this town that they're traveling to m- may very well be uh, super advanced, they may have also been – a technology sharing, so to speak, between the German armies of the 1940s and uh, the <laughs> futuristic town um, yeah. that they are headed towards, which is uh, so. I mean, I think I like Eddie's theory that like maybe planes go missing. And yeah, so it's maybe, like the Bermuda Triangle type of thing, right? Like it somehow just sort of came across this world, and it was some like weird artifact maybe they kept in the city that they're like. It was like basically their uh, version of a UFO, essentially. That they learned how to like coax into a into flight. Yeah, I mean, hmm. I would assume maybe like the person came through and landed. So and... let me posit some other thing for you uh-huh. then. Um, so I- I'm jumping around a little bit in this section, but uh, it- it's necessary. So no in in the future of this chapter, uh, they discuss some poems or not poems, some um, riddles. And one of the riddles that they ask is one that we've heard before. And it is when is a door not a door? Yeah. And it's when it's a jar. Right. So right. the thing that I was thinking about with that coming back around again is that the drawing doors, so to speak, mm. also could remain ajar. Oh. And that okay. things from our world continue to slip through. To me, uh, mentioning that po- or that uh, riddle again, I don't know why I keep calling riddles poems, uh, is that the uh, door being ajar is possibly Stephen King alluding to how this plane uh, mm. came into existence in that area, is that they're are in fact sort of like soft sections where the doors never quite close and things move between worlds. And right. they've, this and has I been alluded to Roland kind of say that, that there used to be more of that. Yes. Like more crossover. And yeah. some of the, uh, well in several sections over the course of this series, uh, Roland's also referred to music and the music has been like the Beatles and other, yeah, songs of that nature that have basically been duplicates on either side of the of the of the world, and mm-hmm. I don't know if, what terminology Roland used to describe how those things ended up in his world, but uh, I want to say he he said the worlds were thin, but I, I might be. I mean, I feel like he basically said like you know those aren't the only doors that existed between. Yes, worlds. exactly. Like, yeah. Thank you. And so uh, maybe I'm wrong, Rachel, but that's that was where I was going with my long convoluted circle. I do think that um, King is really driving home this idea that these that our worlds are more linked than they seem to be and more cross pollinated than they seem to be throughout these sections and this section. So I think using that poem, it, it is one that a lot of people know, but it also does kind of it could I could see how it does reference back to the idea of all the crossover between the world, because that's something that's very important in this section. So that, I hadn't caught that, but I think that's actually very insightful. 
every once in a while when the sun shines on a stop it (laughs) that's not true (laughs) so okay so this section this this is sort of our first evidence that the twin stories that you had mentioned were actually more than legend you know aunt talitha and mercy and Cy kind of like poo-pooed some of the things that they were saying when they were talking about um this guy uh we haven't said who it was david quick the outlaw prince had Mm -hmm. flown a plane like they planes are something that like just did not exist in midworld so it sounded just like mythology and they didn't believe it and so this is our first like actual concrete evidence that they what they're saying there's more truth to it than than you might want to think that they're right about david quick flying crashing and it and it sort of begs the question of like what else did they tell us about the city that is correct um there's probably a lot more to the things that people were saying are not true that actually are true yeah, so that was interesting. And then I'm I actually I kind of have questions. Lay it on so, me. So okay. So basically we learned two stories in like very quick succession here. Okay. Um and they're about David Quick and then about Lord Perth. And he's definitely like an allegory to David and Goliath, right? And so but we we learn about these two um giant men, right? These two um powerful men basically being crushed sort of by their own overconfidence which seems kind of foreboding for roland who was so driven by his quest there's like there's there's kind of a lesson to or at least a cautionary tale about hubris in both of their stories and like this warning about the the frailty and danger of our armor whether it's like the weight literally crushing your neck or falling from the sky or the way that like Roland has been emotionally shutting himself off from the rest of his quartet, which is something that like we see more of in these sections. I don't, I don't know if there's anything to it, but it struck me that we're, that we learned those two stories together in such quick succession. I kind of felt like Stephen King is trying to tell us something with these stories. Like it's not just mythology, but there's there's there is a because like the Lord Perth story is something a myth that is like sort of a, a lesson right about like you hubris and frail, unseen frailties and like unseen vulnerabilities um, that are of your own creation or uh, whether it be literally creating armor or just your general hubris. Well, Achilles heel or Icarus or any of the other Mm -hmm. uh, continuations of that same prophecy of like, if you soar too high, kid, we're going to swat the heck out of you. Right, right. Because I mean, like we find out that like David Quick, like he didn't crash the plane. It just basically ran out of gas, which I think is. Well, and I think Eddie even like makes a pretty poignant comment it's like man the balls on this guy you know he like (laughs) ran out of gas and tried to dead stick it and land on this like crappy road here and like who would do that this guy (laughs) did you notice there was like weird tension between roland and eddie in this section yeah a little bit um Mm -hmm. so in the next next uh little section are you done discussing this one though before i well i want to talk a little bit more about the eddie roll intention okay well let's bounce around a little bit then so there's a a spot where eddie's like um i want to know the history of gilead and all these other things that roland Mm -hmm. has like kind of kept to himself and roland is sort of uh aloof in that he says you know i will tell you in time but i'm only telling this story once and this isn't the right time for it you know and Roland's denial of basically information to the group is sort of a standoffish and it was directed specifically at Eddie, which made it feel a little more tensiony towards Eddie. There's also a statement too. And um, this is coming right up where when Jake's lighting the fire with this like Flint that uh, um, it's an interaction between Eddie and Susanna where uh, Susanna kind of like, looks at him with the glint in her eye after Eddie says something that's like a little bit, you know, uh, uh, sharp and funny and he'd gotten mm-hmm. her some flowers and Roland like internal dialogue is like, you're going to need that love in the next years, months, days, as the hard times come on, you know, that's the only thing that'll right. keep you together. And it's like, well, well wait a minute. What? you're you're, yeah you're you already like uh you're you have this plan of subjection to these folks and then you uh also um are denying them the information with which they are 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 really actually needing to understand like what comes next Mm -hmm. 
and, and those are the things that I picked up on that. And then like towards the bridge, uh, Roland is like, well, he's a gunslinger. Better suck it up, Buttercup. You know, not quite in yeah. those terms, but that's the feeling I got from that that bit as well. Am I incorrect in any of those no, assessments? No, I think there's super weird tension between them in these sections, uh, and it starts here at the in this very first section when um they're at the plane and like Eddie offers to give Jake a boost, and Eddie and Roland's just like, no, 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 I got it, I got it. Just like ignores him, and multiple times throughout this part. Where Eddie's like suggesting, like you know, oh, it ran out of gas, or oh, maybe it went through the Bermuda Triangle. Like he's offering insights, and Roland just straight up ignores him. No, he doesn't even respond to the things that Eddie's saying, and it's it's something that continues, like as you mentioned, to repeat throughout this section. That there's this, and you just sense that there's like this shift in the dynamic between Roland and Eddie. But do you think this is just a, um, a flyback from the previous chapter when yes. when Eddie basically called them out for using them as pawns in his own game? Yeah, I do. I think it's it's on one hand, it I think it is kind of all fallout from that previous conversation that they had because their roles are changing a little bit here. Like Eddie is becoming less Roland's responsibility and his mentee and, you know, and weirdly, instead of this bringing them closer together, it seems to have put some distance between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and he almost, as a result, kind of shifts all of his energy onto Jake and becomes like weirdly possessive of Jake in this part. Um, and then we, I, again, I'm and I'm going to pull a, uh, a DJ and get a little ahead of myself, but like we find out like when when Eddie when Roland's having some like internal dialogue about Eddie that this there is something that's off between them because that conversation where. Eddie basically called Roland on his shit about like using them as pawns in like his personal chess game. It cut, it hurt because it was true. It hit too close to home. And what he's feeling is basically like a sense of shame. And so I think they're in the process of recalibrating their relationship, but instead of Roland kind of having this like magnanimous maternal or paternal energy towards Eddie, he almost sees him a little bit as a rival and is like kind of pushing away from him in a way that I don't think is actually really healthy for the content. And it and comes back to this idea of like having a keel an Achilles heel, right? Like like Lord Perth, his Achilles heel was his kneecap, but still like what what is Roland's Achilles heel? Well and I, I th- think that that's kind of where we're going with this Lord Perth background. I think we already know it. Uh, so um let me posit this for you. Uh-huh. Uh, it's in the same vein, but um, it's maybe a slightly different um, outlook on it. We, to me, it, it felt as though that Stephen King had already sort of revealed Roland's Achilles heel, and his Achilles mm-hmm. heel is his past. And mm-hmm. his past Definitely. is the connection that he is making to his present of Eddie yeah. in the comparisons to his old mm. uh, mates and how they responded to riddles and how they responded uh, to the world in the same manner that he makes analogs to Eddie um, Mm -hmm. at the present time. And so the feeling I got from this was that when Eddie called him out, calling him out was a thing that one of his previous cohorts would have done to him. Mm. And then Eddie continues in that vein to remind him of, I think it was, it was Keith Burt, right? That, Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it continues to remind him of him uh, as they go through this particular section. And each one of those is sort of like a cut to the bone yeah. uh, of Roland. And then in reaction, like, uh, creates a bit of hostility from Roland back at Eddie. Right. It, this also comes back to my theory last time about how, like, Roland doesn't feel like his Kef is as strong with them because he's from another world, but he's creating sort of an emotional and mental blockage. And like, that is definitely a weakness in their group. If he allows that, if that, if that is the case, then he's creating a vulnerability in his group because like the content is, is the strong core of what's going to be able to get him to his end goal. And if he's allowing vulnerability into that, that weakens his, his, it weakens them overall and weakens his chance of achieving it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I sort of agree with that, but I also feel like, um, Roland standoffishness isn't about the cotet as much as it, well, it is about the cotet, but it's more about him feeling like he's getting too close. Mm. 
you know, like afraid. Yeah, like the to get close. Exactly. So like because he sees so much of his previous uh, quartet in this quartet, yeah. he is standoffish because he's afraid he's getting too close to the people that he will ultimately deliver the same fate to as his previous quartet if everything goes the way he thinks it will go. And I, yeah. I'm not I think positing totally anything in the future. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. No, so I'm, I'm not completely off base. Mm-mm. No, I think we're totally on the same page. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think I like where you're going and I hopefully I'm adding to it as opposed to like, yeah, uh, no, absolutely. All right. So, um, so we have that little bit. Um, do you want to jump into the fireside, uh, riddle session? Yes. Okay, so the next interesting thing in this little chapter that we covered here, uh, the gang, like, walks past the plane, continues on. Okay, it's time to settle down for the night. Uh, Jake has a flint, and, like, it sort of feels like maybe his uh, path to manhood is to start this fire for the evening. And so he's got a flint, and he's working on it, gets the fire started. Uh, Eddie has a couple of uh, quick quips that um, uh, get uh, Susanna, like, kind of excited, and he picks a a flower that he finds on the road for her and, and brings it to her and they kind of googly eyes each other. And then, uh, uh, basically that book that, uh, Jake got from Mr. Tower comes out and it's a riddle book. And Jake explains that he got it from, uh, Mr. Tower and, and Roland like grabs him by the shoulders. Like you got it from who? And like Mr. Tower, you know, and like, it's like, oh, well, you know, uh, come on, Stephen King, be a little more subtle than Tower and the Dark Tower, you know, but whatever. (laughs) And and so then they're like, they settle down. Okay, okay, fine. And the book, apparently um, someone had ripped out a lot of the answers to the riddles. And so uh, then they start talking about riddles and and Roland basically explains that in Gilead, uh, riddles were actually a very serious business and that court had actually killed someone over a riddle game that had gone awry with some sort of gesture who had like uh managed to steal the judge's answers that were written on bark uh from their wallet somehow and like right. used it to win the riddle competition and uh and so obviously court killed him and then uh, so I, I guess they must give out gooses or some kind of bird as a prize for yeah. winning this thing because uh court would win the prize bird every every year when they did the uh riddle competition and then roland kind of like uh divulges that he was always bad at riddles because he overthought the answer to the riddle and went too far beyond what the Mm -hmm. the basics of the riddle were which is i think stephen king again trying to bring a new more um, intelligent role into us but then roland explains something really interesting and and that's something that uh court told them uh when they were young is that a a man who could uh, uh figure out a riddle or come up with a riddle was a man who could think around corners And Mm -hmm. the juxtaposition is that Eddie um, sort of uses that same methodology, but with like the jokes. And this is where Roland sort of peels back the Keith Burt relationship between those Mm -hmm. two. Um, And Mm -hmm. to to go back just a a touch, like the first riddle that Eddie tells is like, how did the baby or why did the baby cross the road? And the inevitable answer is because it was stapled to the chicken. Well, um, <laughs> to Roland, that is is not a good riddle, not because there's a baby with staples in it on a chicken. It's because it's nonsensical and there is no uh, a practical application for the world to figure out a way to imply that, that that is the case. And I would actually posit that Eddie is more in the right than Roland because it is – a cultural reference with which you would have to be familiar in order to be familiar with it. So it does have actual depth, even though it's a rather, um, you know, basic riddle. And, and then uh, Eddie and Jake basically stump Roland with a riddle about the door and being a jar, which was what I was talking about a little bit earlier. And then Roland stumps them. What has a head, but has no, eyes or something like that what what uh flow uh, i don't it's basically like what sleeps but or has a bed but does not sleep um it, uh, i don't mouth remember does not eat yeah there you go 
and it's the answer's a river and like they don't get it and then uh they get one over on him with the door and then roland comes back with this like um your mistress loves it when it's bright and red is it or when it grows bright and red and stands up tall and roland or and uh, eddie's like it's a dork you know like he's talking about penises (laughs) and like uh roland's like no no uh it's a double entendre or or something to that nature um and i'm butchering this part so i'll i'll throw it to you rachel no worries. I mean, yeah, this part where they're going back and forth about the riddles, again, we see, like, like Roland has, like, no patience for Eddie right now. Like, he snaps at him, he's frustrated with him, and, like, there's his, like, teacher voice, which sounds like Court has to speak up and remind him, like, you know, there's a reason why he is the way he is, chill the fuck out, right? Like, mm-hmm. give him a break. There's a lot more to Eddie than you think. And it's evidence in this idea that, like, even though Eddie jokes around, he also has the same kind of mind that you need in order to solve riddles. Um, and it's, it's, it's basically Roland's blind spot, like his lack of imagination, like he said, that doesn't allow him to actually recognize that that's the case. The other thing that's really interesting in this section is that Roland mentions that part of what forms your personality is caw. So, that, to me, kind of brought up the question of, okay, so if, there's a reason that people have certain particular personality types has something to do with, like, why they're fated to be a part of whatever it is, path it is that they're on. Like, what does that actually mean in terms of our characters? Like, mm-hmm. what is the the part of their personality that is ca-formed, right? So, like, maybe in Eddie it is this ability to look around corners maybe and like and so i think that's something that we should definitely be thinking about as we go through the book to try to maybe separate what parts of their personalities are affecting like their discrete portions of the journey i don't know i just think it's an interesting concept and something that i want to pay attention for what do you think well i i feel like and maybe this is because i've read the book a few times the series a few times i I thought Mm -hmm. they'd mentioned sort of riddles and seeing around corners previously. Am I incorrect in that statement? I mean, it doesn't sound, I don't remember specifically, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. I mean, riddles have definitely been since the beginning of this book and the introduction of like riddle de dumb, like it has clearly been an important thing in this. And this is the section where like Stephen King really wants us to take them very seriously. Like if there's anything you get out of the section, it's that riddles are important, deadly business. Well, and uh, Jake find, or finds one more riddle before they go to sleep, and it's a riddle that no none of them can figure out. And mm-hmm. and he says, you know, maybe you'll figure it out in your in your dreams, like I figured out this other riddle. And right. I, I felt like that was um, also in line with what you're saying, like a, a heavy foreshadowing. Yeah. Plus, like this riddle really is important. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, so moving on from there, uh, the gang, you know, starts to go uh, head to sleep, and they they decide kind of that they need um, watchmen to, like, keep an eye out because they're getting close to this town where uh, somebody, the greys might come out and grab them. And uh, they're out there in, like, I guess pasture land, and there's buffaloes wandering around, and it's sort of like, it kind of, the description kind of reminded me, I'm from Nebraska, so it reminded me of Nebraska, where, like, Aww. you have these animals wandering, and you always kind of have a vague smell of fresh manure <laughs> that's in the air. <laughs> yeah. And it's, well, I mean, it's like, yep, this is home. I'm home. Let's move here. Um. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, they change out guards and uh, kind of keep an eye out on everything, and... They look towards the city, and Eddie's on guard, and he kind of hears that, um, what's the name of the ZZ Top song again? Like Electric Fly or Velcro Fly? Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, he's hearing the drums again, uh, and they're going on in the background that, like, doom, 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 doom. And I'm... I don't know if that's how they go. I don't. I haven't heard the song, <laughs> uh, but uh, apparently it's just like that, and uh, it sort of like sinks into uh, Eddie's head, and uh, it convinces him that there's some weird stuff going on in the distance. Um, and it's so so strange because otherwise you imagine yourself in like a quiet animal area with these weird drums just like overbearing the rest of it. Uh, yeah. I see you have two stars in this section, so. Um, uh, I'll, I'll throw it to you, Rachel. Like we have Eddie sitting up during his watch, trying to 
think of a solution to this like really difficult riddle because he sort of wants to like show you know Roland that he's not an idiot because his feelings are a little bit hurt about how Roland has been treating him and like we see in the ways in which he's really grown like he's super perceptive and he like has like very like gunslinger superhuman hearing and smell and sight and all that jazz but at the same time there's still like a little part of him that is that little brother that he has always been in the way that he he's still trying to prove himself he's still sort of like seeking that reinforcement that he is accepted that he's smart like he wants to be reassured by Roland in a particular way that just like kind of pulls at your heartstrings because like do you think well around and he like he has a lot of pride but like there's still like a very sensitive side to him that makes my heart hurt do you think that uh while roland is experiencing a comparison to his past eddie is likewise experiencing the same thing but for a different person I mean, I think Eddie has always ha- been someone that had, like, someone he looked up to. Like, his father was absentee, so it was always Henry for him. And then along came Roland, who was, like, in many ways a much more positive influence. And, like, I think he's sensing that distance and that rejection probably a little bit here. So, I mean, he's definitely someone who, like, I, he's always been the little brother to someone. So, yeah, I, I kind of agree, I think. I think that part of the tension that's developed from this is uh, Eddie wanting to like ha- uh, have that relationship with Roland and then Roland uh, comparing it to a past relationship. Yeah, I think that's true as well. I mean, I think they both have a lot going on here. A lot like, of baggage. You, you can, if you speed through this, like you, you don't really see the nuances, but there's actually like a lot of interpersonal shit that's happening with Roland and Eddie that is totally founded in their past traumas, whether it's the loss of their friends that Eddie or that Eddie reminds Roland in, or it's the trauma and the desire to have like a father or older brother figure from Henry traumatizing Eddie as a kid. It's a deeper relationship than you might like at first glance see on the surface. Yeah. I didn't, uh, I didn't think as much about it until you started talking about it, to be honest with you. I can't help myself. The other thing, just in this section really quickly, is just now Eddie is fully convinced that this music is definitely the ZZ Top song, which again goes back to this idea of cross-pollination of cultures. Like, this is clearly something that's very important that Stephen King is trying to drive home. And I, I, I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about the music being a ZZ Top song. Like, is it less creepy or is it more creepy? Um, so I had to actually play the ZZ Top song now, oh. so I knew what the heck this is about. And the music video definitely has some, like, Egyptian undertones. Okay. And some, like... I mean, it doesn't appear to be a great song by any means. But, <laughs> um, but the music video starts out with just like ancient Egyptian ruins and then like three scantily clad girls in, in you know, uh, what would be Halloween costume uh, level uh, hot Egyptian uh, yeah. costumes dancing about and with like that Sexy rhythm. Oh. Yeah, so, I, you know, I maybe Stephen King was being a little deep with this. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. He just thinks it's a bop. I don't know. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't really know for sure how that song links up. Okay. Anyway, so continuing on the gang wakes up in the morning and they kind of hear like a weird, obnoxious buzz and Roland's like, Ooh, we get dessert. So they, they start wandering around and they head over to where the sound of this weird buzzing is coming from. And they're pretty sure that there's bees there. They get there and they find these like bloated, slow moving bees with a hive that is really just like random holes stuck into stuff. And the bees are bigger than normal and weirder than normal and moving at a strange pace. And then we kind of have a conversation about the wasteland, which is, you know, the the toxic um, wars that caused this to be a wasteland and I'm guessing basically undertones of nuclear radiation that have caused irradiated bees and mm-hmm. Roland basically says that if you eat that honey it'll undoubtedly taste good and it'll undoubtedly be the last honey that you ever eat <laughs> and then uh, Roland kind of mentions that uh, uh, there's also mutant other creatures and that like some of the buffalo are making 
babies that don't make babies and so on and that uh, the effects of the wasteland have started to ease in and i i almost wonder too if some of the problems of the uh people that they just left in the previous town um aren't also just being so near to these wastelands and driving people mad and so on uh there's a lot of nuclear holocaust um books from that time frame where one person would be, you know, free from nuclear radiation. Another person would have a slight exposure and then sort of go mad. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel like that's kind of what uh, Stephen King was going for with the people that drove through the town and just like wrecked it for no reason and then took off again. Yeah, that's actually I'm glad that you brought that back because that's something I was thinking about, too, because like he talks about here how um, whatever this like great war old war great fire cataclysm great poisoning are the different names for it like whatever Mm -hmm. this was had like um very obvious physical effects on life but that there are other things that are ongoing that are less obvious and the thing i was kind of coming back to was like is uh is is he actually talking about like uh the decline of civility in people like sort of like a like they're like primitive like becoming increasingly primitive maybe more barbaric is that what he's talking about as the, like the more subtle effects of that's sort of that. what i was picking up on but mm-hmm. maybe I, oftentimes like i i have a fever dream mind so I, i'm fearful <laughs> that i'm mixing some other thing that i was thinking about in with this and and so i'm glad that you sort of agree it, it if well, yeah because I, I feel like he's like there's a little breadcrumb there and we're supposed yeah. to wonder what that means and so i'm trying to think about like what i think it has to be like more about what's happening in the city right well not just that but like the crazy acts that people have been uh mm-hmm. um undertaking like uh the guy in the airplane you know what drove him to fly out into the distance away from the city Hubris. yep not just hubris, but like maybe madness from the radiation exposure, you know? Could be. I don't know. Could be. I love these little moments like with the bees where it's like sort of subtle horror. Like, you know, like we have the big scene where the house is trying to eat Jake and it's sort of this like big action set piece horror, mm-hmm. which is super fun and I love it. But it's also these little quiet, grotesque mutant bees type of horror that I really love. Um you know, like it calls back to those those the the robots and Shardik's clearing that are kind of in decline, and you just feel like this mm-hmm. creeping, like just sort of like this ickiness, and just sort of like you can sense the sickness of the world that they're living in. That is, you know, I don't know. It's just very compelling, um, and I, I love this. And it also does like the subtle world building. Like it's kind of a reminder. It's easy to forget when they're like walking through this beautiful like these plains with like buffalo around that like actually there is there is underneath the surface this like sickness that continues there's Um, slow muty bees wandering about yes right so i i really liked that um i also like this is the section that finally like eddie confirmed what we have been you know talking about for several weeks that midworld is this post-nuclear war wasteland basically um and it made me harken back to your theory last time about how cops aren't like aren't what like gunslingers didn't turn into cops but cops turned into gunslingers yep so i I thought that was interesting like it it kind of came full circle for me um but the other thing i love about this section is sort of the way that they sort that is is the treatment of how the nuclear holocaust that happened in this world has fallen into myth and it made me think about like all of our sort of ancient cataclysmic um uh events like atlantis uh, I mean, yes, but I was thinking <laughs> specifically of the Great Flood. Like, if you go across cultures, right? Like, oh, yeah. I mean, we all know the Noah one, but, like, you go to, like, across the cultures, they all have a Great Flood myth, which, like, leads people to believe that there was some sort of cataclysmic event that took place, um, whether it was, like, a meteor or, like, the shifting of the poles or something caused some Great Flood, right? Mm-hmm. And that those stories have been told through mythology and legends that have been passed through the millennia. And so it this and the mention of the Bermuda Triangle for me sort of drove home um, that 
this story has a connection to our world, not just like Eddie and Jake and Susanna's New York, but like your and my world where these are like sort of cultural and mythological, mythological touchstones that like have personal resonance that I thought was really interesting. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with you. Um, the cultural touchstone thing, like you would send me down a rabbit hole of ancient aliens and, uh, back to the the things at hand. Uh, I think we already talked about um, uh, Eddie kind of calling Roland out on yes. on telling his history, and th- mm-hmm. that happens like you know basically right after the Night Watch. Um, yeah, then the gang like, Eddie's like, just being the voice of the reader at this point. Like enough with the trickle of info. Give us the story already. Like you know, I I I Rachel, I have reached the point where I am ready for some flashbacks. <laughs> just give me the freaking story already i know he's setting up the next book but i'm like Ugh. so the, already. the gang wakes up and like they kind of hear uh commotion off in the distance possibly like gunfire and fighting and and mm-hmm. so on like basically the sounds of a battle and uh they kind of um start hearing that uh um that zz top velcro fly drum beat again and mm-hmm. I, I only have that memorized because I literally have the bikini video up right now in one screen. <laughs> um, this is like that bikini video you shot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And um, some of yours is in a graveyard. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, oh man. Uh, let's not, let's not <laughs> harken back to bad it. metal. <laughs> um, so uh, basically the, they start talking about, uh, um, the the train again and i think this is where i i jumped ahead a little earlier and rachel caught me is they sort of discuss the reason for the train and the wastelands and um the fact that you can't get through the wastelands because it's you know such a toxic environment but the train can take you but you know blame the train is a pain and that is the truth so what is coming for them in the future and Roland kind of like calls Jake out a bit and is like, well, is this car telling you this? And, and Jake's yeah. like, no. And he like walks the logical path through of like, well, it's the wastelands and you know, uh, you can't walk through it. Obviously look at the bees. Well, but you could take a train through it and then we would be safe. And like, well, Oh yeah. And then, and so I thought that was kind of interesting too, that like Roland thought that, um maybe jake was using ka or the shining and like almost calls him out as being too young of a user to know how the how Mm -hmm. ka works to be able to use it in that manner yeah yeah i mean like jake's just like i know because i know i don't know why i know i just know which is my weird spoiler alert bloop 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 fast forward 30 seconds like I wonder, here's my spoiler. I'm going to do a spoiler now. It's a spoiler, big spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Fo- grab your phone. Fast Yay. forward 30 seconds. You got this. I wonder if the way that Jake knows without knowing is less to do with shine or the situation than it is a byproduct of having done it before countless times. Maybe. Um, I thought I the wonder. insight came from his his uh uh book that he wrote for his school yeah i mean i think he knows that there's a certain inevitability to blaine and like as much as we want to change the path potentially like there's just no getting around you right okay spoiler section over you're safe you're safe if you've gotten to this point you're safe so uh basically with the the talk of blaine the train and the uh the business of rolling calling him out for ka uh, to me personally i feel like um that's he kind of knew it because he wrote about it already and him writing about it was sort of when he was in that cracked state of mm-hmm. mental disorder between Roland and himself. And so my feeling personally was Roland may be calling him out for use of Ka, but I almost feel like he was using Roland's Ka. Mm, interesting. Cause they were sharing a brain sort of for like a, a bit. Kef situation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that's sort of how I felt. Um, but yeah, that could be. It doesn't mean he he seems unclear how he knows, but he's still totally certain that he does. So it could very well just be that he's like picking up a message from Roland. But the other thing that uh, in this section is it's a very creepy because like if you like mentally picture this, like it's the middle of the night or like early 
early in the morning and the drums are beating and Roland wakes up and like they go and they can listen and like on the wind they can hear the sounds of a battle taking place. It's just such a cool sort of I can like you can picture it's like cold like it's very evocative this whole well he does mention it's like crisp air of like the early early spring or fall or something like that and it's sort of like it's reminiscent of that like the morning before a battle feeling like you feel that like dread and anticipation that Mm -hmm. is really palpable and um fills you with that like really strong sense of dread that's pretty great um but the other thing about this is that if Eddie is correct and the drums that we're hearing is not some sort of machine or who knows what, right? The God drums, whatever, are actually just like this rock song. What that actually means, because the fighting starts and stops when the music is playing, is that it's some, it's not, it doesn't sound necessarily like a straight up war, right? It sounds more like ritual or religion um that somehow if they're starting and stopping with the music like that sounds like maybe there's a cultural thing that's happening there around like when you fight when the music plays you fight you fight to the death kind of vibe and i think things are going to be very bad and very weird in lud if um war is like a more spiritual or superstitious or like more spiritually or superstitiously ingrained in the populace hmm yeah no yeah, I, don't I'm, know. I don't know uh yeah and i think it comes back to this idea of like the lingering effects of the great poisoning or whatever you want to call it oh um, yeah yeah being a, then becoming more primitive right or more superstitious um the dark and ages that, so to speak yes exactly this breakdown of civility and like this violence born of like superstition mm-hmm. around the drums is really creepy um and very scary <laughs> uh yeah so so yeah i think i think that's something to think about the other thing is is i wondered in this part where you were talking about him like calling jake out about like well should we go around i wondered because i if it was another case of roland using sort of his reverse psychology that he was using the first time they talked about it um, oh yeah about maybe. going to the dark tower only with this time he's doing it with someone his relationship with jake is very different um and he's not necessarily someone who knows roland enough he's like a kid right he doesn't know necessarily that he's being manipulated and so I was wondering if you think that's what's happening here again, or if their relationship is different um, and he really wants to get Jake's feedback or option C, if this is him like kind of trying to absolve himself in advance for failing Jake, if something goes wrong in the city, like what is his motivation here? I I would almost lean towards the, your, your premise that uh, he's doing like a, a reverse psychology move. Right. You know, like, no, you don't want to go there. Oh, I want to go there. No, you don't want to go there. Oh, I want to go there. You want to go there. Oh, I don't want to go there. Right. And, oh, something happened. I gave him the option to get out of this. He didn't have to go. I told him, like, So this once... time I didn't fail him. I didn't let him fall. He chose this. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I hope that's not true. But that was the kind, like, there was a little cynical part of me that was like, Roland... So doing (laughs) this next section, like you'll have to pull pull on the reins if I jump over too much. But basically the gang is wandering down this road and like the road keeps getting bigger and bigger. All these like contribute contributing roads, like sort of add into a multi lane. And I almost picture like if you're in a major metropolitan area where the interstate reaches that massive number of lanes right before you go over to, I don't know, San Francisco on the bridge. And all of these littler I'm interstates so keep dumping in. I'm glad you mentioned the Bay Bridge. We'll come back to it, but go ahead. Okay, yeah. So the description of this, like Stephen King is like they're they're heading along this road and each road, smaller road hits it and then the road gets bigger. And you almost think of like more lanes being added on on either side as all of these contributaries bring people mm-hmm. into this massive city. And then as they're wandering, like – they go kind of down a little ways and there's raised areas around them on the sides. And these raised areas like would be perfect to filter out. I don't know, an invading army or, you know, anything else that comes mm-hmm. in because it gives the inherent high ground to the folks of the city and, and the low ground like a little choke point. 
yeah. Exactly. And it's like the perfect military move to have like a low ground directed uh, path of travel that you have to go through in order to get to this section. And there has been some alluding to that in um, earlier mentions of the city with the like floating bridge and so on and, and the access to the city itself. Um, and, and so they kind of wander through that. They make note of the ominousness of this. And then this sort of poops them out in front of a, a, a big bridge. But And the bridge looks like it used to be a crazy modern work of art. But as they're describing it, like these these heavy anchors into the ground have sort of twisted in the mm. – the the cable the guide cables that were once mini strands of steel wrapping around each other have not been painted in a long time and Roland even I mean not uh, Roland uh, um, Eddie even mentions that he he had a couple of family members that were bridge painters and that as the paint starts to fade on these the rust begins to work their way in and like eats out strands and the strands start to pop loose from the major structures mm-hmm. and then the ties between those twist and the cement and and part of my um, Bay bridge mention is like, you know, in that famous video with the San Francisco earthquake, you are in my brain today. What? Yes. yes. So it, it, as they describe the dilapidation and horrors of this bridge, like the first thing that came to me is the pictures from, I it was the mid nineties, I believe when the San Francisco mm-hmm. earthquake happened mm-hmm. and these entire tiles and subsections from above and below just like dropped out and down onto the layers below them and yep. like left gaping holes and sections. But ironically, the Bay bridge also has a, a side suspension cable that has a, a walkway all the way across one side. Mm-hmm. And it has guide cables on both sides of the bridge that also support those walkways separate from the main supports. And when they start to fail, those gallop as opposed to snap like the rest of it because they're not as uh, um, rigid of a structure. So yep. when he's describing these these giant gaps and the road coming together and so on, uh, I just right away went to the Bay Bridge is like the mm-hmm. thing that meets all of these descriptions uh, of the the earthquake scene from like the 1990s. Now I, I hear complete silence on your end, which means that you were in 100% agreement with my uh, assessment. I'm just going to read you my notes verbatim. <clears throat> I alluded to something in this book being a re like featuring an a reoccurring nightmare of mine. And folks, this bridge is it because I grew up near the Bay Bridge. <laughs> This description of it, like, swaying and humming and the heights. Yep, this is a dream that I have had where I'm having to cross this bridge while it is collapsing. My, like, from my teen, like, or my, my, you know, basically from when I was a kid on. Because I read this book only a few years after the Loma Prieta earthquake. So, which my father was on during that, that earthquake. Ooh. Yes, he did not fall. Fortunately, he survived. Everything was fine. But, like, that Bay Bridge terrifies me. There's a new version of it. Um, it's just as scary. But, like, it is. it was always totally rickety and shaky. And it has been a... Every time I go into the city, it was always terrifying to me. And I would have these dreams where I was having to cross it by climbing up over the top of it um, while it was collapsing underneath me because of this book and that earthquake. So it's so funny that even someone who didn't grow up on the West Coast immediately thought of the same things as I did. It's crazy. (laughs) We are so on a mind melt this episode. It's not even funny. Well, the bridge for me, um, I've driven over it so many times because I I used to love to go hiking up to the top of, uh, is it like Fire Observatory used to be? like mm-hmm. just up up north a little ways and to the left of where the bay bridge is at. yep tell my yeah yeah and that's a great spot to drive up to and wander around and then like look at all of san francisco under fog and I, mm-hmm. I, i've done that so many times and my imagination almost went to you know the cable inspecting uh shoots on either side of the bridge where like you're like why is there a locked gate up there and mm-hmm. then you're like 
Oh, someone actually has to walk all the way up the cable. That's what my dream is, is that I'm having to walk up those things. And like, yeah. And and it's like, whoa, yeah, that's not fun. (laughs) No, it's crazy. Now, back to the the bridge. So we've discussed all these horrific things about bridges and falling and so on. But what is the manufacturer of the cable that is the bridge? That would be Lemurk Foundry. Thank you. So anytime Stephen King has you stop and read a plaque of the manufacturer of something, take note. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> um, a fun sort of Stephen King universe connection. This is not a spoiler. It's just a little Easter egg. Um, in the movie Dr. Sleep. Have you seen this yet? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay, so there's a part in Dr. Sleep where he is working, where Danny Torrance is working in, like, a park, and there's a little train, and you're like, oh, Blaine the Mono! Um, If you look at the front of the train, there is a manufacturer, like, name, and it is Lamarck Industries. Oh, really? Yes. Little fun Dark Tower connection there. (laughs) That's kind of cool. Yeah. (laughs) I I remember it being important, but I, I couldn't remember... Which one? Because in some of the later books, we have a lot of different manufacturers. Yes, and... this is something that is important as we go forward. We've had North Central Positronics. Have we had Somber Corp yet? I don't yeah, think I so. I think we've had Did Somber we? Corp, yep. Okay, because I know there was... I can't remember. What is the one that was on the in the, the parking lot? The parking garage. Not parking garage, but uh, abandoned lot. What the abandoned lot where the rose was found? I believe that was the Somber Corporation. Just, was it Sombra? Was it Turtle Corp or something? Uh, well, there was a mention of Turtle Turtle Bay or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So just just a little word to the wise, non spoiler. Just pay attention when they break when those down. He makes a point of pointing out the name of a company or a manufacturer. It's worth just putting that in your little memory bank. <laughs> memory bank. Uh, <laughs> so uh basically we've described the crazy bridge and then yep. they're like well okay well there's that walkway with holes in it um i think we can make it let's do it and so the gang starts out onto it and uh eddie starts to like kind of internally panic and this is an again an aside where roland is sort of like well he's a gunslinger he'll 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 bandage you know <laughs> suck it up buttercup <laughs> and and so uh, uh, basically, uh, right before he gets on there, uh, Oi like walks between his legs and like he has a little panic attack and cutscene. Yes, yeah. I mean, I think there's some really great tension building here, pun intended. Um, he, you know, it's just interesting to see how everybody reacts to the bridge. Roland is like straight in problem solving mode, like fearless, just like this is how we're gonna do it. Jake has it seems like kind of eager to go. Susanna is chill and Jenna like gives zero fucks. And then Eddie is freaking fully out. Um, which again proves that Eddie is our most relatable character. Uh Stephen King, like he is the master of suspense, right? This this I feel like the lead up to this, getting onto this death trap bridge is so terrifying. Because Ooh, the description of the tension cords fraying and spraying out like little puffs and just all of that is so creepy. You can hear the sound of the wind on those over-tightened cables like humming and the squealing of these things rushing against each other as it sways. It's just so, it's such great tension building because you know you're going to get on this bridge. You know it's not going to go well. Like, it can't, right? Like, we're not going to just walk across the bridge like doodly doodly do, no problem. So it's very, yeah, it's great tension building. Mm-hmm. So, How uh, about you? I mean, I'm not as afraid of heights, but I, I would say this is a bridge over troubled water. Uh, oh, snap. You see what he did there? Oh, that was real bad. Sorry. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I liked it. Um, I actually sped past this section and continued on and then had to rein myself back in so I didn't uh, accidentally spoil the next next section of the podcast <laughs> because it gets I mean, pretty crazy. Oh, damn. What did you think about this section overall? Um, I, You know, I like it. Uh, the Muty Bees and yeah. the poem thing, like, it's a good throwback to – the time in new york um the mm-hmm. elaboration on like the wasteland and the war and like a little more foreshadowing of what blaine will entail um basically beefs up the previous like uh charlie the choo-choo stuff that we had in the previous section uh, mm-hmm. I-, I thought overall it was good and then 
you know, completely unnecessary, but also good was the guy in the plane. And I will tell you that I refrained from a Tommy knocker reference when they said that his brain was green. Oh. <laughs> Everyone drink. <laughs> DJ said Tommy knockers. <laughs> uh, but I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty good, actually. Um, uh, it, It's not like the most action packed or anything, but it had a lot of fun moments and it wasn't yeah. so deep as to make me kind of go uh la la through the whole thing and let Rachel do all the explaining. Yeah. I mean like this is an exposition heavy section, but it didn't feel as like heavy as the last one did mm-hmm. in part because we had, we were rehashing things you and I had already discussed. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of really like weird little asides in this section that I enjoyed, like finding David quick, um, in the plane, and then finding the Nazi symbol underneath, just like, uh, like the 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 mutant bees are really cool. Finding out like the mythology, all these names for for whatever had taken place, this like cataclysmic thing that had taken place. There's a lot of like subtle world building in this that I really liked, and weird stuff like they got back to that weird Western feeling, like I've yeah, with the bulls wandering through the plains, you know. Yeah, like I've talked about this before. One of my favorite things about open world games in the vein of like a Fallout is when you're wandering and the weird shit you find along the way. Like it's not necessarily important to the larger plot, but it's it gets back to that weird Western feeling. And so I really love the mutant bees. I really love David Quick in the plane. Um, and then there's also some really great like subtle character stuff, like the tension that's growing between Roland and Eddie. And, and all of it is... It feels grounded in character as opposed to grounded in just, like, pushing the plot forward. Which <clears throat> I think tells you that Stephen King is really settling into who Roland is. We saw him transitioning that character in these last few sections um, previous to this. But I think he's, like, found who Roland is. And now we're being able to, like, develop interactions between the characters that feel very naturally based in this new Roland 2.0. So, um, who is like increasingly more of a complex and flawed character, which to me is a plus. Um, so yeah, I really like this section. I'm super excited to face my fears next time because <laughs> we are going back into my nightmare on that bridge. So we'll see how, <laughs> at, at, as a grown up, how I fare on the bridge. If, if it, oh my god, if I start having reoccurring nightmares on the bridge again, I'm going to be. Bummed. You just need to do some bungee jumping and and some like uh, uh, more free falling, and you'll you'll get used to it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. So plan for the next episode. We are going to continue in this uh, bridge and city. So Wastelands, Book 2, Lud, Heap of Broken Images, Chapter 5, Bridge and City, Sections 11 through 20. Game on! Uh, yeah. All right, we don't have any additional Stephen King connections, multiverse connections. We already covered that um, with... It was just like a little thing. And again, again, still no updates on anything to do with the Dark Tower um, adaptation. I'm probably going to go ahead and just drop this section moving forward unless something really important comes up. I think probably we'll talk about the stand as we get closer to that because, like, of all the adaptations out there, and there are many, um, that's the one I know you're going to be watching. <laughs> There's some, some real bad adaptations of the stand, let me tell you. Yes, so we'll definitely talk about that. Um, I'm watching The Out- Outsider, which has some very, very tiny crossover, like a mention of Ka, essentially, in the book. And I'll let you know if when we get to that part in the movie. You know, Rachel, you've, ta- series. you've talked about adding bonus material to possibly some kind of Patreon. Uh, maybe yes. it would be a good thing to go back for some special episodes and revisit the worst adaptation of Stephen King book movies. Oh, dude, one at a fun. time. Like, you know, you could hit the Langoliers. Yes. Oh, my such a weird soft spot for that stupid ass series. <laughs> We'd have to do the version of The Shining with the guy from Wings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That shit was grim. <laughs> There's. There's some there's some really bad adaptations of Stephen King. So, uh, key, yeah. uh, if if you're listening to this uh, episode right now and you think that's a good idea, you know, uh, hit us up on the Facebook group and let us know. Because uh, Rachel, I've kind of been fishing around randomly for things that we might do uh, on the Patreon. Yeah. 
I had just had an idea. You know what would be fun is if we did like a a Google Hangout and watched it together. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, that would be super fun. All right, so I'm glad you actually brought up the Patreon because I didn't have it in my notes and I needed to. Is just we're still working on that. That's something that's very much in the works, and I would love to get your guys' feedback. Like, does that sound like a fun thing you would want to get in on? Is there anything other content that you'd be especially excited about? Uh, we definitely have plenty of ideas, but we would love to. Like, it would be invaluable to hear from you guys what you think bonus content you would like to um would like to partake in should you be our patrons um yeah that's about that uh there's no listener feedback this week but for those of you out there who either wants to talk about the patreon or something that happened in this chapter or whatever you can always drop us a line at cast of zombiegirls.com join our facebook group come hang out with us there if you're not an email person but you're a facebook person you can t- chat with us there we're always lurking around on the facebook group and if you are enjoying the show, please do leave us a review on iTunes. All right, DJ. I know people can't find you on the internet, but any exciting side projects that people could partake in? If um, they want some more DJ in their life? Nah, right now, if you are, if you, if I think I mentioned this last cast, I'll be uh, joining the uh, uh, Portland uh, One Wheel group riding around yeah. on Friday nights. Um, you can always catch me at Science on Tap in, in uh, lovely Portland. Um, if you if you are into watching lectures with a beer of the professor's choice, um, <laughs> uh, otherwise uh, non IRL. Sorry guys, uh, you might find me lurking on uh, uh, Reddit, but that's about it. If you want to find me on the internet, you can find me on the Zombie Girls podcast, where we review horror through a feminist perspective, or you can find me on the String Queens, where we review horror films that you can stream on the internet. So you're thinking Amazon Prime, Netflix, Shutter, all those joints. That's where we pick. That's where we pick our movies from, and we just goof around and have some fun reviewing them. This uh, next episode, we're going to have some guests from the Here's Johnny podcast, and we're going to be reviewing Candyman. Um, Ooh, I love Candyman. I know. I'm so excited for the the new movie. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and finally, you can we have a new podcast. It's called The More Deadly Podcast, which is all about reviewing horror films that are directed by women. Our first episode is out now, where we review Rabid, the Cronenberg remake by Jen and Sylvia Soska. And I think the next one we're reviewing is Tigers Are Not Afraid. I don't remember the name of the director because I'm a terrible feminist. <laughs> I feel like the music you need to start that off is that uh, female of the species is more deadly that's than the male. Inspired by yes, I, so that's what <laughs> I've been up to. If you want to do some more of this on the internet, that's where you can find me. All right, DJ, take us out. Well, guys, thanks again for listening to another exacerbating episode of the cast of Kaw, uh, where we make sure that you are fearful when you travel over any bridge because it'll likely collapse on you and murder you and you will be forced to climb the strings to your fateful death at the top of the bay bridge or any other bridge because they're all scary and if a bridge sways don't get on it that's just dangerous um that's your safety tip for the night good night everyone we'll see you next time on the cast bye everyone bye